0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Most uh, Americans love chocolate. The debate over milk versus dark chocolate is one for another time, but the industry is a large one around the world, and companies within this sector are looking for new and creative ways to produce chocolate as well as improve their operations. Steve Wallace is the CEO of Omahini Cocoa Bean Company, which is using sustainable methods to produce chocolate from Ghana. The company's operations don't just include the production itself, but efforts to take care of the workers with a place to live and three meals a day, amongst other initiatives. He has chronicled the rise of Ghanaian chocolate in the book Obroni and the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar. Steve, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, Dan. Delighted.
1: Thank you. I guess let's start with the, how you came to, one, be connected to Ghana, but also, two, to want to start this company in Ghana.
0: Sure. Well, it goes back uh, quite a few years. Uh, I, in 1978, I was a high school student in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I had been selected for a foreign exchange scholarship on a program called AFS, and I was sent to the town of Sunyani, Ghana, which at the time was about an 11- or 12-hour bus ride up country from the capital of Accra, and I was placed with this remarkable host family. My host father had three wives and 21 children, and I took my place as child 22, Uh, and it happened to be really at sort of the northern edge of the cocoa-growing part of Ghana, and for your listeners who may not be familiar, Ghana in any given year is the largest or second-largest trading with uh, the Ivory Coast, largest cocoa-producing country in the world and has been you know, since the early 1960s. So I had a great deal of affection for the country. That summer was uh, uh, transformative for me. We had a coup and a military takeover of the government. Uh, the economy was sort of a shambles at the time, and so I was had a firsthand seat at an emerging democracy, what it was like for a post-colonial country to begin to try to move forward in terms of both democracy and uh, reinvigoration of its own economy. So that's where the affection for Ghana came from, and all the rest of the business was in some ways an excuse to go back to a a place that that I loved, frankly, and I wanted to bring what I could in terms of uh, small business knowledge to that country and see if if we could um, sort of play some small, uh, modest role as it began the transition from a colony to, um, you know, a, a first world economy.
1: Well, and that's kind of the interesting thing is, uh, one, is that you weren't in the chocolate industry when you started to, to make this shift. But two, uh, from what I read, Ghana is a pretty good, uh, pretty good sized cocoa producer, but they had never really gotten into the production of chocolate and chocolate bars, correct?
0: That's right. They were really you know, comfortable um, at, at you know, what would be called the very bottom rung of the cocoa value chain. Growing the beans, the beans would be purchased. They'd go offshore in any given year. Ghana probably exports 2 to $2.5 billion of raw beans. And uh, you know, when I looked around, and, and if you were to ask people where does good chocolate come from, they might say Switzerland. Uh, the more discriminating or discerning might say, oh, Belgian chocolate's wonderful, French chocolate. And my first question that, that came to the front front of my mind was, how many cocoa trees grow in Zurich? And the answer was none. And I began to think, why is it that a country that was so primary and seminal in the growing of, of what's called the world's finest cocoa really enjoyed none of the... Fruits or the benefits of the cocoa value chain, and why did they move upstream to create chocolate? And that's what I thought they would have a freshness advantage, and wanted to put some assets against that and see if we could actually manufacture, export. Grade chocolate that could compete in world markets.
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I tried the sample that came uh, with the uh, copy of the book, and I'm not necessarily a dark chocolate fan. I am more of a milk chocolate fan. But the, the the version that I got was a dark milk chocolate. So I'd like you to take us into how that is actually produced, because I will I flat on us, it was really tasty.
0: Oh well, thank you, Dan. Um, and one of the, I think, the joys and benefits of being an entrepreneur is you get to sometimes ask the questions no one wants to ask. And I sort of have this feeling, had I grown up or worked in the world of big chocolate, I might have been fired years ago. But <laughs> what I I perceived, and this I didn't realize either until I got into the business, the word dark chocolate is a definition of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It refers to the minimum amount of cocoa liquor, which is the non-alcoholic essence of the beans. So the cocoa liquor would give us the aroma, the addictive quality, the euphoric quality yeah. of chocolate. Uh, so if you have um, a minimum percent, uh, it's you get to call yourself a dark chocolate. And it's different in every country. So you could have a dark chocolate in the United States. Switzerland, for example, has a far higher threshold. So a dark chocolate in the U.S. may take it to Switzerland, and it wouldn't qualify as a dark chocolate. So it's mm-hmm. not a, a universal or a globally defined term. It's country by country. I thought Americans were, were sort of, their taste, their palate was maturing, and they wanted more profound and intense chocolates than they grew up with in the real sweet chocolates that, that we probably you and I grew up with. And so I wanted to, you know, more than double the cocoa content needed to call yourself a dark chocolate in the U.S. So that's mm-hmm. what we did. We also then used full cream milk to take a little bit of the bitterness, uh, which is inherent in cocoa liquor, off the edge of that chocolate. So what you're getting is a dark chocolate. And the FDA said, well, if you put a drop of milk in, you either have to call it a milk dark chocolate or a dark milk chocolate. So we really (laughs) invented a brand-new category of chocolate called dark milk chocolate. And so what you're tasting is, to our knowledge, the darkest milk chocolate
1: yeah, because, I mean, I've had dark chocolate before, what's considered dark chocolate, and there is obviously a, a fairly significant different taste between dark and milk chocolate, and, and this piece didn't have that, that same difference that I've noticed in the past.
0: Right. We wanted this to be real approachable, but give people, um, you know, take out some of the sugar, take out some of the cocoa butter, give you a real authentic um, single-origin, all ghana, these primary beans— Chocolate flavor. So uh, yep. we use, as I said, just a little bit of milk to take that kind of edge off of pure uh, dark chocolate, which traditionally dark chocolates. Yeah. Don't have any milk in them. So sort of by convention.
1: So as for the story of the company, which I, I find amazing, and as I mentioned, uh, really sustainable efforts by you and, and the people that you work with uh, there in terms of a variety of things. One being the, the, the taking care of the employees in a, in a region of the country or a region of the world, I should say, that maybe doesn't have the same type of opportunities for people that work in factories than, than a lot of other places do, being able to give them meals, being able to, you know, look at about housing and such. Where did that element come into play when you were building out this business?
0: Well, I had grown up in a, in a series of family businesses, and they were small business um, endeavors, uh, you know, in the Great Lakes, upper Midwest region, and, and the sort of ethic of treating your employees well, treating them um as family in the sense of, of you're a steward for, for people's lives and livelihoods was ingrained with me. Um, and also, you know, in a practical sense, what I realized was Ghana certainly had the human talent and and, and and the raw materials to make fine chocolate. There was no question about that. What I think it lacked was the ability to market, brand, create recipes and get hold of the trade craft. That was necessary to export chocolate into high-value markets. Deal with all the regulation, the food safety, all of this, and so I needed to spend a lot of time both in Ghana setting up the production, but most importantly abroad selling the chocolate. That's that's what I think had really been missing, mm-hmm. and so it was this sense of if I'm going to be in the United States selling the chocolate, I wanted to make sure the production everybody was happy. So in some ways, it's uh, think of it, I suppose, as a somewhat of an insurance policy if you know it's axiomatic i think that that happy workers workers that feel you know that it matters that they show up to work and that they're well cared for um... um, are more productive so for me it was a productivity issue and it was a sustainability issue because i didn't want to have to keep retraining people and rehiring so we try to find good people and take care of them well and we'll all create wealth together
1: We're talking with Steve Wallace, who is the CEO of Omanhini Cocoa Bean Company. He is also uh, the author of the book, Obroni and the Chocolate Factory, An Unlikely Story of Globalization and Ghana's First Gourmet Chocolate. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. By by taking a lot of the steps that you have had, really specifically around the employees, what has been the benefit that you have seen, not necessarily for yourself, but for those workers? What are the stories that they have relayed to you uh, in the course of this occurring?
0: Well, um, and I should say, when I started this... Ghana's government has a Ghana Cocoa Board, which is really a vertically integrated overseer, if you will, of the whole cocoa industry. Right. And they had an ethic of, of wanting to take care of workers, too. Um, uh, you know, the cocoa farmers, for example, represent really the middle class of Ghana. Certainly they did when I started the company 26 years ago. They represent a very significant voting bloc. So um, you know, politically, it was important to take care of everyone. So when I, you know, sort of conceived of the company, um, these notions of, of, of taking good care of workers and, and the sort of things we do was not such a huge difference. Um, for I mean, this, this was met not with surprise, but sort of an expectation. Of this is how you do things. Mm-hmm. In, in in West Africa at least within Ghana or at least within Ghana's cocoa sector so some of the things that are that are nice I mean there's a uh, at our production facility there's an on-site medical clinic with a with a MD uh, for all the workers and their families there's a commissary so they get free lunches um, uh, free uniforms all the workers are shareholders in the factory again this is trying to align our economic interests um, I wasn't going to create wealth if I was you know, exploiting know, trying to just arbitrage cheap labor. Uh Um, But I thought, you know, what we have to do is create a very um, unique and compelling flavor profile and a freshness imperative for our chocolate. That's what we're going to compete on, not do I have the lowest cost of production in the world, because frankly, um, I don't.
1: So uh, the the chocolate that you are producing right now is being exported to where?
0: Um, It comes to the United States. Um, and we export it to Japan as well. So those are two big export markets. We've done some um, smaller work in Canada and the United Kingdom um, for some ingredient work as well.
1: So it it appears also, I saw a video of uh, the president of Ghana. I guess you have retail locations here in the United States, maybe in Santa Monica as well?
0: Right. Um, Really, uh, we... Sell in um, um, dozens and dozens of states i don 't know if it's all fifty but thirty five forty forty of the states right um, you know i 'd say coast to coast, but I think that would give a sense that we 're a far bigger company perhaps than we are, but we do we, we do a lot of um, independent um, um, re- retailers right on grocery store work whole foods work but it's it 's primarily um, independent retailers of various sorts that we've sort of uncovered that really love our product and use it both at retail and behind-the-counter um, in recipe, ice cream makers, specialty coffee people like this.
1: You you also mentioned the fact that uh, not only in, in terms of your understanding of business, did you learn a lot from your dad, but also from your host dad as well?
0: Right. I think the book's a lot of a celebration of fathers and what we can learn. So I learned... Um, um, uh, for my father in the United States, the sort of flexibility that's needed, the sort of ability to really have to set aside your own ego and, and um, you know try to f- excite people about your business idea and and and, in, in, and involve them in meaningful ways in your company. And my host father uh, was a remarkable man. Uh, he had uh, cobbled together an independent, um, you know kind of little business world, little constellation of companies at a time when 85% of all the jobs in Ghana were government jobs. So you work for a ministry or a local regional government or something like this. So there was the rest of the 15 percent of the people were largely farmers. So the idea of people working in their own business was, was really quite a foreign concept. He had half interest in a Ford tractor, which he would lease out to people. He had imported a couple of small Toyota Corolla cars, which he used as taxis. He had some interest in farming. And so through all these sorts of things, he would they have chickens and rabbits he raised. He did all sorts of small businesses, but found ways to commercialize them. And um, also had a world vision. I mean, he was kind enough to open his family and uh, uh, to, to me and welcome me in at a time when you know food was scarce and the yep. economy wasn't strong. He really thought there was a big world out there that. that you know, even he, if I could say, up in Sunyanigan, could compete in and play a role in. And yeah. that sort of wonderful enthusiasm for the world, as opposed to being scared of globalism, he embraced it as improbable as it was. And I think that kind of um, inculcated with me an enthusiasm for business that uh, I hope I carry with me to this day.
1: How, how do you think, uh, with this experience, how do you think globalization as a term or as a, as a business idea can be even adapted to improve even further?
0: Well, I think, um, just maybe to step back, Dan, I mean, I was struck by how globalism changed, think back after post-World War II, the word globalism, which really underpinned the Marshall Plan when we bailed out Europe. That was sort of deficit spending writ large, you know, and I think everyone at the time thought the Marshall Plan was a wonderful idea, that you engage with countries, you help rebuild them, and if there's a lot of international trade between countries, they're less likely to shoot at each other. Um, You fast forward 50-some years and you get to the Seattle protests in 1999 and globalism. By then had become sort of a shorthand for economic exploitation of labor and loss of U.S. jobs. So I wanted to really revisit the term globalism. As really the classical uh, economists, as David Ricardo and Adam Smith talked about, which is the... um, in essence, globalization and the specialization of international trade means you do what you do best, right. and you trade for the rest. And so I thought if I could put, for example, the papermaking industry, which, which Wisconsin used to be filled with trees, and then we had these German immigrants that came with their wonderful printing technology. Right. And some of the uh, places where we print our labels, they have you know printing presses from the 1930s still running, marvelous machines. So we combine what, what Wisconsin can do best which is some laboratory testing, uh, printing of labels, design, compliance, regulatory, legal accounting. We, we combine it with what Ghana does best, which is growing cocoa. Um, if I look outside today, I see how cold it is. There is no way Wisconsin yeah. or, or anywhere in the continental United States will ever be cocoa growing countries. So how do you put all these pieces together to actually create wealth rather than a zero-sum game where I'm, I'm taking workers from your country or I'm exploiting some economic small advantage. So I, I was really the aspiration was. I think globalism, and academics, I think agree, really does increase wealth writ large. Yeah. In the short term, there may be some people who are harmed by it. To be sure, I came out of uh, the uh, apparel industry, and the U.S. apparel in- industry was devastated. But I think there are ways if one is creative, the, and economies have to reinvent themselves. But the globalism does provide the opportunities countries to figure out what it is they indeed do best and to then press that advantage in cooperation with others.
1: Do you think there's an ability to be able to take what you have done with Ghana and, and replicate that in other parts of the world, whether that be in chocolate and, and maybe at this point, you know, chocolate, you are so invested in it that that, that is the way to go? Uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I know St. Lucia is very much a, a big cocoa location as well. You know, can you or, or do you want to replicate this in other locations?
0: Oh, I, absolutely. I would love to. And I think the diff, you know, the, it's easy to say in the abstract, figure out what it is which your country does best. Sure. And oftentimes I think countries look back and figure out what it is, you know, they do best. And it's sort of historic. Uh, um, you know, are you a dairy state? Are you a manufacturing state? Right. And, and, and I think what really, the hard work is articulating what it is. That indeed you're best at, not what you wish you were best at, not what historically you were best at, but what are you good at now? What sort of assets do you have that if you deploy them correctly, um, and is it not just high tech, but high tech in the healthcare center right. um, sector or biotechnology? In, so I'm always when I look at countries and people come to me and say, oh, our country grows the best tomatoes in the world let's look at it. Are there other crops that grow as well with tomatoes that maybe have a better economic advantage or less competition? So I really try to tear apart and get at it because I think Adam Smith and David Ricardo, when they talked about what makes a country unique, it wasn't just a casual use of the word. The hope is you can articulate what in your soil or your microclimate or your education system or your topography gives your country some real articulated competitive advantage in the world. So, um, you know, it's that can take a long process. I think it's too easy to fall into sort of the easy answer.
1: Sure. We're talking with Steve Wallace, uh, CEO of the Omahini Cocoa Bean Company, as uh, he mentioned, uh, is located in Ghana, but also uh, partly in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 942 Steve, not only the CEO of that company, but uh, author of the book Obroni and the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization, Ghana's First Gourmet Chocolate Bar, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show that way, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I mean, as much as this has has developed out, uh, are there elements within the operations of Ghana that you look to to still add, to still improve things, not necessarily from the business perspective, but the relationship with the workers, you know, things that you can add or you can bring to them that maybe they haven't had before?
0: Well, I think um, – interesting question, Dan. I mean, always – I mean, you're always looking at, at self-improvement for the company for all those involved with the company, and then the environment we work in, which is uh, the country of Ghana, you know, writ large. You know, and, and if I start with Ghana, at least, I mean, it was um, knocking at the door of what um, you know, global economists call middle-income status, so moving up from poverty to middle-income status. and This was a sort of hugely um, celebrated occurrence, and uh, you know, I'd like to think we can help play a part of that. Now, since then, you know, Ghana sort of teeters right on that borderline um, and has it solidified its status as a middle-income country? I mean, I think some, some people um, would, would, are still waiting for that sort of confirmation. And over a course of several years, it would, would be there. So, um, uh, you know, I guess I'm struck in some ways that uh, you know, if you're a former colony, your economy was really based on extractive industries, so whether it was gold, Ghana used to be called the Gold Coast, for example, or it was cocoa or gas and oil. Things are lifted up the off out of the ground and they 're shipped abroad for either processing there really isn 't there hasn 't been generations of people involved with trade craft with really you know adding value to a raw material as long as the price of of cocoa was was a dollar less than the world price perhaps or the quality was a, was better than then the world quality you know, people just line up and take your goods uh mm-hmm. you really didn't have to sell them and i i'd like ghana to get to the point where it really realize that creating brands creating products with raw materials will unlock you know quite a bit of wealth for that country and it's scary because some of those investments you know will fail that is just part of part of life and Um, It's a government that really can't afford, doesn't have a lot of resources, can't afford to fail. On the other hand, I would tell them to do nothing is a choice as well. And over time, you know, there have to be some um, institutional uh, investments in just an enabling environment that will allow these sorts of experiments and moving up value chains to take place. So that's really right now one of my focuses is trying to articulate and advocate for that case.
1: I would be interested to know if you have heard from other companies, whether they be in the chocolate industry or not, about what you have done and and kind of this model, and are are they starting to glean ideas off of what you have done to incorporate in in their operations?
0: Um, I think that's the case. I mean, it's certainly crowded some of the you know, I think a business school's professors will often tell you sometimes first movers bear a disproportionate amount of the cost of educating a market about uh, a new way of doing things. And I suspect we 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 were that first mover 26 years ago in terms of we were, I believe, the first uh, single origin chocolate bar back in, uh, this is like 1991. Uh, we were the first to manufacture entirely at origin and sustain Exports of finished chocolate, you know, to high value markets. So, yeah. um, um, and there have been others that came off. You know, I should say uh, there was a, a sort of a. I was giving a speech at a university. A classmate of mine who happened to be editor of Fast Company magazine, featured a competitor of of ours um, on the cover of Fast Company. And I emailed him and I said, "I wish your journalists had found out that we were doing single origin manufacture of chocolate in Africa." Two decades before the company you happened to feature on the cover, and uh, he wrote an email back that said in so many words, "Steve, you know, if I had a magazine called Slow Company, you'd be on the cover." Um, uh, and so I, I sort of like to celebrate the long-term satisfactions of companies that aren't, you know, made built, bought, and sold within five to seven years in sort of, uh, say, a venture capital model. I think there's a model. There's a lot of satisfaction from running a company, creating jobs, trying to tackle difficult and intractable problems over time. And these are the things that I get a lot of enjoyment of. Um, you know, and I think sometimes competitors come in and out they, they either are captivated by those sorts of aspirations or they 're in it you know strictly for a short term gain i think mm-hmm. there 's a difference between making money and creating wealth yeah and i 've always been more interested in creating wealth over time, which is really sustainability creating profits over the long term and I think especially in emerging markets. Um, if I can speak with a pretty broad brush, uh, like many of the African markets, it takes that long-term commitment. There aren't going to be quick wins or or very few.
1: Steve, you're doing great work. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Enjoyed the chocolate. Enjoyed the book. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today.
0: So kind of you to have me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.
1: Steve Wallace, CEO of uh, Omanhaney Cocoa Bean Company. Uh, The book, again, is Obroni and the Chocolate Factory, an uh, unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.